0: emotion is just one part of it. And again, I find it to be very empowering for patients to find this unity of all these different signs and symptoms, which the longer that that I practice acupuncture, Chinese herbal medicine, the more I see all these things in the textbooks that at first just seem arbitrary are real. And having your hands on people is a very worthwhile way to bring that reality to the patient.
1: I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological experience, either positive or negative, becomes a kind of set point, something we either struggle with getting rid of or strive to recreate. Both are a prison. Both bind the mind into a kind of stasis and have the adhesive force of gravity. One that draws us to the experiences we're trying to avoid or resolve and the other that has us continually striving to recreate something from a sense of lack or longing. On first glance, these reference experiences are something to overcome resolve, or put to rest. From one perspective, we can see them as attractors that pull us from the present moment and all that it has to offer. But these experiences also define us. They are the stories that we love to tell, the wounds we aren't quite ready to heal, the tales of woe or wonder or enchantment that have been the stepping stones that give meaning and trajectory to our life. These are the experiences that make us us. Who would we be without them? Our reference experiences are what make us uniquely who we are. They are the guiding stars by which we navigate our values, preferences, goals, and aspirations. They as much open a world to us as they do close us off from all the other options. They help us know who we are and who we aren't, but they also limit who we might be. These experiences orient us and set our stance toward life. They are the bones of what we stand for or against. At the same time, even as they open a sense of what the world is, they limit us. Much like our five senses open a world to us by perceiving certain wavelengths of light or ranges of sound, and at the same time leave us blind to that which our senses cannot touch. And like we use language to organize our thoughts, naming things, creating mental constructs, all this can be helpful, but anything outside the name, anything outside the construct becomes walled off from the realm of possibility. There are religious traditions that suggest you don't name the divine, not because it's evil to do so, but because our minds can only grasp so much. When you name something, everything outside the name becomes unavailable, and you certainly don't want to wall yourself off from the divine. Reference experiences act as a pivot that organizes the orbit of our lives around the gravity of their influence we constantly circle around these experiences. Their influence is the constant silent whisper behind our thinking. They are the touchstones by which we judge all of experience and are so hardwired that we fail to notice they are the lenses that filter our perceptions. Knowing we don't know leaves the door open to possibilities. Our mind with its referential experiences could not possibly imagine. And it's not about not having reference experiences. It's about noting their influence with a gentle heart that dissolves their stasis and allows for movement into a deeper wave of connection. I am delighted today to have my friend Jason Robertson back on the podcast. I'll bet that the majority of you Geological listeners are familiar with Jason and the book that he wrote with Dr. Wang Jui. And if you are, then you'll know that Jason is a hands-on guy when it comes to medicine. Which is why today's conversation was so much fun for me, because we dive into a completely different realm, the one that has to do with the constantly unfolding storyline between our ears. Let's get into it now. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. planting trees and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution it's simple too. visit acufastneedlescom geological to learn how
2: hi folks I'm Yvonne Lau president of Mayway herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gone this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Meiwei.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so. JANE. JANE is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the JANE team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with JANE, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every JANE subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to janeapp slash switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Jason Robertson, welcome to Geological. Hey, Michael. Glad to be back. Good to be here. yeah, it's all it's it's always fun to hang out with you. and and you are currently, as we record this, in the other side of the world, but not the China side. You're in Germany,
0: yeah. I am uh, in Berlin, Germany right now, where I just finished teaching a three day class before going on to Hamburg in a couple of days. It's been an interesting, evolution in life after spending all of my 20s and most of my 30s back and forth in Taiwan and China to be traveling to Europe in my 40s here. But you know, the journey and the story continues.
1: Yeah, well, that's what we're here to talk about today is stories, right? I was in Seattle recently, and we were hanging out a little bit. And uh, you, you know, I always think of you as like the hands on guy, right? People come into your clinic, like, give me your arm, right? And You're like palpating channels. And, you know, you've really learned from Dr. Wang, how to use your own physicality to touch and, and literally listen into the tissues and, and like listen through physiology. And when we were hanging in Seattle recently, we were saying, yeah, I've gotten really interested in the stories and the narratives that my patients have. And man, that just rang a
0: bell for me. Well, tell me, I mean, just to back, I mean, I I, I love it when you interview, but I also like reverse interviewing you as well, back to the story thing. What is it that gets your excitement about this idea of stories before I start to talk about mine?
1: Oh, man, look at that. You just turned the tables on me. (laughs) Well done, Dr. Robertson. I am interested. Yeah. Well, you know, I think for me, some of it is I've always loved stories. That's a piece of it. And another piece of it is um, years ago, I I had a a passing interest in psychology and there was this one hypnotherapist. They called him a hypnotherapist. Actually, I think he was like just a brilliant communicator and understand, uh, you know, tremendous understanding of human nature. His name was Milton Erickson. Mm -hmm. And he just, you know, he just like tell people a story and their lives would change. All right. I mean, he was like, he just had this-
0: This artful way of, use you know, of story to elicit awareness of where you are, kind of.
1: And to understand where people were themselves. I mean, he did not try to talk anyone out of whatever was going on for them. He would deeply join them where they are. And, and when you deeply are connected to, all kinds of stuff can happen. So, so that's a piece. But the other piece for me is that over my years of, of being a practitioner and listening to people, I listen to the stories they come in with, right? Or that you know they might come in. It's like, what's going on with you? And they're like, well, you know, I've got this blah 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 diagnosis, right? And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah. So what big deal? What's actually going on with you? And it, it I find it takes a lot to elicit what's actually happening because they're so locked into the story of, I have this diagnosis, and it means this, and it means that, and so I have to do these meds, and I have to listen to these people, and I have to behave this way, blah, 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 that they've totally lost track with other resources that they might have. And they totally, in many ways, are completely out of touch with all these other aspects of the reality that they inhabit, because they're living the narrative. They're living the story of their diagnosis.
0: Well, then, yeah. I mean, basically what you're saying is you're summarizing a lot of what I want to talk about and what I've been thinking about in exactly the same way. Some of the things you just said are interesting to me as you talk about, you know, people being trapped in their story. And then, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in is us helping people to reshape the story, just like you're saying, is to to change the story that they're talking about so that then – they are motive mainly really motivated to make a lot of the lifestyle changes that are so important for us to actually get results is, is is getting people to change the things they're doing every day that are re-injuring themselves. And then the other thing you said that really I mean you the, the word we use in English out of touch is is like this lack of an awareness of being in your physical body and and the story that 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 creates when you're not in touch with where you are. and so, you know, this gets to the heart of what I think Chinese medicine has to add to this idea of narrative medicine. And that was the article that I want to talk a bit about with you as well, which is, you know, kind of this idea founded by a doctor named Rita Caron at the, uh, what is it, Columbia Medical School in New York, where she's kind of founded this subfield within the medical school there of using literature as a way of helping new medical practitioners to be more aware of the process of storytelling in their patients and also storytelling in their own lives as practitioners. But what I think Chinese medicine can add to that is this importance of physical palpation, this connection that we can make by having patients feel the things that we're feeling in their bodies and that instead of us seeming to make up an an abstract story that they may or may not buy into, but by actually feeling the things that we're feeling in them a nodule on their lung channel and explaining the relationship of that to their cough in a simple sense are also much older things that we can find through palpating the channels. suddenly narrative and storytelling also becomes physical so it's like that place of the meat and potatoes hands-on things that you're saying I love where it interacts with literature in fact and, and that's what's really got me thinking this year. And as I told you before we started this interview, this is, we're really thinking out loud. This is just a bunch of ideas that have been coming through my head, but I haven't formulated them 100% yet.
1: Oh, well, this is a great place to explore it then. When, when did you first start to notice this thing about the stories that people have and
0: and how that was affecting what was happening in the clinic? Well, it, it, it you know... I I, I probably should begin with the story of a patient. And as you know, most of us listening here, most acupuncturists listening, we have to be good at treating physical pain, musculoskeletal complaints in order to pay the bills. And so, so many patients, they come in, that's their first thing they want us to work with. And then nine months later, we're working with some other aspect of their condition, some more chronic problem, or their daughter's insomnia or something else. And this is one of those stories. It was a patient, He was a probably 38-year-old male, and he was a dad, had two small children, and he uh, came in for right hip pain. He was an active, you know, yoga practitioner, always going to, you know, do physical things like hiking and very aware of his body in very good shape, but he had this right hip pain that he could not figure out. He'd seen physical therapists, he'd had massage therapy, and like no one could quite get to the bottom of even where the hip pain was. It like, you know, I'm sure some of us have had this feeling like you just feel like your hip isn't sitting in the joint right, or at one time it's tight here and the other there. And so, you know, palpating this patient, he had very clear hard nodules along his liver channel on the right side, especially kind of the liver five, six area and the mm-hmm. adductor muscles up in the hip, up in the, you know, the you know, the upper thigh there were very, very tight. And so that's consistent with, you know, kind of an imbalance in the pelvis, One often sees with the adductor muscles being really tight on one side and maybe the IT band, the Shaoyang gallbladder channel on the other side. And so I thought, okay, it's kind of a liver gallbladder, Zhuoyang, Shaoyang kind of pattern. And I went to work treating that type of pain. And and like a lot of patients, yeah, he was better, but then he's like better for four days, comes back, and it keeps returning. Mm Mm-hmm. You know this kind of patient, and so this is oh, that yeah. we've all, we've we've all <laughs> had this experience, right? Where you you're pretty sure you can feel what you need to do, and again through palpation, for me it gives me a level of confidence that if I can palpate it, then I then I'm onto something. I can hopefully help the person, and a lot of times I can. But there's also that thing where the person's re-injuring themselves, and then it's up to us to figure out what it is they're doing. You know, with hip pain, it could be the way people sit at work, the way they're driving, and we're used to thinking of what is it they're doing in their physical bodies on a daily basis that's re-injuring it? And I went, but this guy was like, he's a yoga practitioner who's always aware of his body. So he could shoot me down on all of that as I'm trying to talk about what he's doing to re-injure himself. He's already thought of all that and already tried all that and it wasn't yeah. getting it. Yeah. He probably knows more about it than you do. He, well, he certainly knows way more about his own body than I do. And he knew what he, he knew what he'd tried and it didn't work. And so then I talked to him more and then, I mean, you may be aware um, in Seattle in the last couple of years, we've had a a legalization of marijuana. And what what he'd been doing also is part of the frustration of dealing with these two little kids. He was a stay at home dad. He'd taken to eating edible marijuana like every night to help him sleep, to get through the night, to deal with the stress. He started finding himself sometimes having beers in the afternoon and he would started to do things, you know, lifestyle wise that that he didn't normally do. And I started to describe to him the issue that I kept feeling this tension, this hardness within the liver channel on him. And, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but I, I found it to be the case that often, especially the edible, you know, cannabis products tend to affect the yin of the liver. They tend to kind of, it, kind of dry it out a little bit over time. And that's so I was. No, I, I, you know, I haven't
1: found this, but that's partly because I live in Missouri.
0: Yeah, I mean the patient, <laughs> the patient population. I mean, I saw this amazing fact. In fact, right as I was coming here to Germany, in the in the Seattle newspaper, that they're speculating that uh, one in four people are going to work with some sort of cannabis product in them in Washington State now. So, I mean, it it's having real effects in interesting ways and creating mm-hmm. new patterns in our clinic. And, and yeah. so I started talking to this guy about the liver channel, my, my impression that it affects the yin of the liver. Uh, you know, he was very interested in, you know, Chinese internal alchemy ideas. And he started to really think about this. And, you know, af- this was probably by now we're on the fourth visit. That's where you're either going to help the person or lose them a lot of times. You know, they're, they're better. If they're not getting better by the fourth visit or you're going in circles, it's time to refer, in my opinion.
1: Absolutely. Yep, yep. I'm with you on that. Sometimes we have this story. Let's talk about stories that we have in our, you know, our, our um, profession. And that story is, oh, yeah, you're going to need 12 treatments to find out if it helps you or not.
0: Uh, That may be something we've inherited from the case studies, you know, you know, stuff we get from China where people could come for 12 visits. But in my experience, in my clinic in Seattle, if I'm not getting results in three treatments, it's even if I want to keep treating the patient, they're not going to come back because it's expensive for them. And secondly, yeah, no, I think I, it's I, ethically I a same problem thing. if we're not getting results. And after three treatments, we should refer. That's. I mean, I think I would say that. And I don't. That's all I would say about it.
1: Okay. All right. So so back to back to this guy.
0: Okay. Yes. Yeah, so this guy.
1: Deficiency from edibles.
0: So yeah. So but but what happened was he was very aware. He could feel. He was. You know. He was even looking at Chinese acupuncture textbooks, the pathway, the channel sinews of the liver, he could see that this is where ultimate, you know, which goes deep into the pelvic floor and like goes way into the body. He could see that this is where his issue was. He began to be aware of this in his own Qigong practice as well. And he's like, all right, that's it. I've got to, you know, I've got to make major lifestyle changes here. And he did. And he, you know, he stopped, uh, essentially stopped all of these medications, all the things he was taking for at least three months, you know, and then, and then I'm not sure what happened later because he got better. Because then, you know, he came for a few more treatments. The treatments began to stay, you know, that finally, you know, balancing Juyin Xiaoyang treatments that I was using were effective for him and they lasted in the normal way. Like the first time lasted a week, then two weeks after that. And then after that, I said, call me if you need me. He came one more time, like a month or six weeks later and and he's done. So what I'm trying to say then, this is back to that idea of stories, is What we can do through diagnosis in Chinese medicine, whether it's palpation or just the patterns that we see of how the headache is connected to the loose bowel movements, is connected to the insomnia, et cetera, we can help people to see their various complaints as part of of a cohesive narrative. And when you can do that, it's very motivating to patients for changing their life, I think, too. And, you know, where is it? How much of what we're doing is that? And how much of it is the acupuncture? I would say it's both, but this is an important part that we all need to appreciate, I think.
1: Yeah. You know, and so often, I mean, there's this whole thing about, I'm using air quotes here, medical advice, right? You should exercise, you should do the, eat this, don't eat that, blah, 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 right? There's a million things out there. And often when people, when we say these things to people in clinic, it's totally not helpful. Partly because it's supposedly common sense. You know, you keep eating this, you're going to get diabetes and you're going to be on drugs. And, and you know, it it doesn't go in. It somehow the threat of diabetes is not enough of a motivator to make a change. And so what I hear you talking about is there is a way of hooking things up in the person's own mind that helps them. I don't know if it's find the motivation or find the ability or just recognize that, oh, I need to live my life in this way. And it's a very natural shift as opposed to trying to push something onto them from the outside.
0: Well, you use the word recognize. You know, the the Chinese word renjur is that Mm. function of the heart. The heart, you know, renwu in the Neijing, it says the the heart recognizes stuff. And so... If we can find ways, and I and again, I think palpation is part of this because the recognition is not just intellectual; it's physical. They can feel you pushing on this sore spot on their on their lower leg at Liver Six, and and then it connects to what they're eating and changing, and they recognize this. They actually see it, it for themselves. Not they're not just convinced of it. And so it is. Maybe you could say it is something where the heart shifts because there's. I think the word recognition is perfect for this. mm Hmm. And the other thing that I guess that that in, inspires this discussion is my thinking in the last couple of years, uh, you know, more than maybe more than a couple about this character that we all know, Jing, which we translate as channel, but of course is the same character as the Nanjing and Nanjing and the, you know, these classical texts in Chinese history and Chinese culture, and this idea of the relationship between literature and medicine seem to be implied by the fact that the core medical text that we, that almost everyone at least begins their association of Chinese medicine with, the neijing, is a, is, you know, sometimes people translate that word jing as a canon, I guess. And, but there's also in Chinese culture, a cha jing, a, 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 a classic of tea. There's a shir jing, mm-hmm. a classic of poetry. You know, so there's these other classics that come down through time that are part of Chinese culture. And for some weird reason, and I've been thinking about this, why is the Chinese character for what we call a channel, a Jing Luo, a Jing, the same character? I mean, what are your thoughts right away on that?
1: Well, as we're having the conversation, there's two thoughts that come to mind. One is much like in English, you can have a single word. It has two very different meanings. So that's one. The other is because we're kind of dipping a little into metaphor here and we're expanding our thinking and looking at story, we could look at the idea of a classic as containing some elemental stories, some very essential information that comes through metaphor, through story, through you know a very right brain, nonlinear way of looking at things. Yes. And maybe the Jing hold pieces of our story. And as we're having this conversation, I'm, we've all had the experience when we're palpating somebody and we find something and they go, Oh, what's that? Oh, why is that sore?
0: Yeah. And then you describe the pathway of the large intestine channel and they're like, Oh, Maybe that's related to this old tear I had in my deltoid muscle. That's why you found that kind of sore spot down in my forearm. Something as simple as that is, is those O moments where something in the channel has a story that, that, you know, that they're not aware of anymore, but is part of their life. Yes.
1: And, and here's where I think it gets very interesting. We have our own stories about what things mean, right? We've learned different kinds of diagnosis. We've learned different kinds of treatment methods. We've got our ideas of what's going on based on our clinical experience and what we've studied. What I'm beginning to finally cotton to in my clinic is that it does all that stuff does not matter a whit to the patient. What really matters is if I come across something, whether it's something that they've said or something that I feel, and there's that moment of, oh, what's this? And that's when I shut the hell up And I invite the patient to tell me more about what does this mean for you?
0: And it could be a nodule you palpate in the channel or the way their tongue looks or something like that. Is that what you mean?
1: That's what I mean. Or just something that they said. Oh, you know, I something in their history. I had a patient some time ago who came in because of this uh, asthma diagnosis. She hadn't had asthma prior to that. She's, She's got asthma. She's on all these medications. And she said, yeah, you know. Recently, my dog died and I've been so grief stricken, I can hardly breathe.
0: Mm. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Oh, man. You know, I mean, how simple is that? You know, in some ways, how simple is that? But it is not helpful for me as a practitioner to go, oh, well, you lost your dog. Grief is associated with the lung. You got your asthma. Mm. Guess how helpful that is to her. Well, it's I mean, zero helpful.
0: Do you think, I think not? I mean, you, you think that, I mean, I think in a way it's empowering for them to realize the connection between their grief and their breathing difficulty. I mean, I think it allows them instead of thinking this is one more thing going on in my life to see that they're one and the same, that they're well, part of the.
1: pattern. Tried going, I have tried going on that path with her and she kind of gets it in an intellectual way, hmm. but it only goes in so deep. And so I have given up trying to explain, oh, well, your asthma is is due to your grief and part of your grief is this other thing in your family and blah, blah, blah. I, you know, I, I've got a story. I've got my narrative and, and it helps me treat her. But what's more helpful is simply to listen to her. And, and there's moments where she will start to put some things together in a way that matches the narrative of what I have. And all I have to do in those moments is kind of go, Hmm, you know, maybe that's the case. How do you know that? <laughs> yeah. And guess what happens? She goes deeper into it. I find for myself, if I try to push them into getting what I see,
0: it is usually not that helpful. Okay. Well, but if, what you're saying yeah, is actually, yeah, well, what you're saying, I completely agree with. And there's a way through this, I think. And, all right. Tell us. And, well, I mean, this again, we're all speaking from our own clinical experience and us as clinicians, we have to, you know, we all have our own personality in the clinic. But but I think the again, the, the some of the back to the idea of Jing is something that's moving through time in the case of the classical text moving through time. The story that the patient's telling also unfolds over time. So, you know, I think that, you know, when I first started studying Chinese medicine and we talked about the psychology of the emotions, and I, you know, what you're saying, like you would try to have that that patient in the first visit or something, you'd explain, I got the whole thing figured out, your grief and, and your lung and your breathing, it's all connected. This is how Chinese medicine looks at it. Aren't we awesome? But instead, I think the way that this works is that we focus on treating the breathing problem. And we notice, I just notice sometimes she's talking about the grief. I don't even bring that up maybe for the first visit or two. And then start to treat the breathing problem and see if they don't notice on the third visit that they're breathing better. And then you start to talk to them about the grief. So you have to let the story unfold over many visits, as long as their chief complaint, which probably is something physical like breathing or knee pain or insomnia or something more every day like that. When that's getting better, they trust you more and... The act of shifting the physiology and the channels shifts their emotions and then they begin to change without you having to force feed the conversation like you're describing. So I do agree with what you're saying, but I also think that later over time, beginning to link them to the story of how the grief in the lung was connected, you know, in later visits, that's what helps them be done with you and get out the door, which is what we're trying to do with all patients.
3: It's at ansesselsturman.com forward slash sinews 2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think there is a time and a place, and there's a kind of ripening that has to happen for them to get there. It's like, you know, when we treat, we think of root and branch and maybe we start with the branch and then we're going to work our way back to the root. This, this I think gets to some root kinds of stuff and, and you can't get at it until other things have been uncovered or integrated or taken care of, or maybe there's just enough trust in the relationship where someone can go, yeah, it is that way.
0: I, I, yeah, or you, I mean, root, or you could call it the old saw about peeling layers of an onion, which is the metaphor I overuse with my patients, probably, and all of us do. But th- there's also, I guess, the idea that, you know, treating psycho emotional conditions, le- and there's many opinions on this, so just put this on the table as one opinion, not the truth about it, of course. But for me, I would say, and I haven't come up with the right metaphor, like treating emotional conditions for me is like out of the corner of my eye. It's peripheral. I'm instead focusing on the physical linking of all those different signs and symptoms into a pattern. And those are often physical signs and symptoms, including the way the channels feel when you palpate them, but noticing the emotional part, but not putting that on the front stage and saying, I'm treating your spirit right here in the fir- first visit, you know, all right, we're going to focus on grief, you know, like instead focus on the lung and, and just slowly let that peel out over, over time, you know, like so many things, you know, like, um, you know, there's so many aspects of, of Chinese philosophy that talk about, you know, wu Wei and not, you know, doing without doing. And I think treating psycho-emotional conditions, if you simply have the strategy of thinking of the emotion or of grief or whatever as being one of many signs and symptoms, and then just put it in the in the cooker there and not saying you're treating that directly, you actually get better results with it, this kind of peripheral way of coming at it. I don't know a better way to phrase it. What do you think?
1: I, I, I think peripheral is a great way out of the, and, and I love the phrase out of the corner of the eye. I find there is so much that happens. If I focus on it directly, it disappears. Yeah, I mean, you know But if I leave it there at the edge of consciousness, it's like it's here, it's in the room, it's at the edge. There's something here. But again, I, I think of things growing to fruition. It's not ripe yet. It's not gonna take, you know, it's like little seeds at a certain point. They might want some shade at another <laughs> point full sun is exactly what they're going to
0: need but you put the full sun on on a little sprout sorry gone well and so i mean i i'm not implying that you don't have tons of clinical experience with this i know you do but yeah maybe this patient you're talking about it'll like suddenly bubble up and she'll start you know one of my patients said she had an orgasm of grief in one of the treatments, like, you know, like on the eighth treatment working wow. on her upper back pain. So these things just pop out and you don't force it. I didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to get her to talk about the grief in that treatment. So, I mean, I think that's been a thing that happened in the 20th century in Chinese medicine is that, like, we got this idea that, that, that I guess it goes back to, the dual, you know, duality idea that in Western culture that you can treat the spirit or you can treat the body, but you know, like there's some practitioners who treat the spirit as if that's a higher level thing. And really it's impossible to separate them. And in fact, I would argue that we get better results in spiritual things by focusing on the physical. It's not that you're not treating it. It's just what you're saying. It's in the corner of your eye somehow.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think it's a very powerful place for it. Because, and why is that? Okay. I, I, why am I thinking it's more powerful that way? maybe it just has to do with my own experience of my own emotions i'll just i'll just become very transparent here in this conversation where it, emotions are such a slippery curious thing and 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 one of the things that's curious about it for me is that often others will see my emotion and understand it more clearly than i will right or i'll express something and i don't think i'm expressing it but other people see it very clearly and so i i think there can be something very tender with wanting to be seen but also wanting to be really respected in that seeing and if if you go at something especially emotionally too directly it, it kind
0: of scurries away and hides it's it
1: scurries <laughs> if, if there's if there's other kinds of stuff that's attached to it any sense of guilt or shame or grief or you know whatever else gets attached it yeah it'll scurry in the light you need you need to build up a sense of there's safety here, there's connection here. And there's something in this thing that I feel very uncomfortable about that also is right and true and worthwhile. And maybe there's emotions that we've had that our family or loved ones or respected teachers or society in general said, this is not good. Let's not see this. But there's actually something really important in there. And if we can somehow slowly get to that place where we find the thing that's important a
0: lot of other stuff will fall away but i think it takes time and it takes some trust and and as practitioners of chinese medicine i think we have this great gift of being able to weave all these seemingly random physical symptoms oh you have a twitch here oh this hip is tighter oh yeah you don't you know you're not hungry for breakfast in the morning oh yeah you you know your tongue looks like this and we can help them weave it into these patterns that allows them to see the emotion is just one part of it and it, again it, i find it to be very empowering for patients to 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 find this unity of all these different signs and symptoms which the longer that that i practice acupuncture chinese herbal medicine the more i see all these things in the textbooks that at first just seem arbitrary are real and 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 again. Having your hands on people is a very a very worthwhile way to you know bring that reality to the patient.
1: Well, it also grounds it in something very present and physical.
0: Yeah, and again, people get nodules at pericardium four when they've had lots of grief, you know, like you can let them you can feel it. So it's it, it, but you but what you you were right to check me on this idea of making it happen and i am glad that we went down that road for a minute because it, it's it's definitely kind of an unfolding peripherally that should happen when trying to tell the story with a patient so you know we're talking about storytelling here i i definitely am not saying that i try to create and 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 perceive the entire story on the first visit in fact as As you know, Michael, really, the practice of Chinese medicine itself is a dialogue. We have a hypothesis. We think this is what's going on. We do a treatment. They get better. They don't get better. They respond to us, and then we get to know them better and better. So every you know conversation clinically we have with the patient, hopefully we get closer to actually helping them. But those first visits, which is why I like to say three visits and not one visit, but hopefully you're beginning to hear the person's story and their channels and 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 everything else in a couple of visits. But, but not right away. And, I, and you're right to call me on that, actually.
1: Well, I, I think we have this thing. You know, we want to be good practitioners. And we want to be helpful to people. And we want to feel, you know, like we know what we're doing. And we have these fantastic stories in our sort of Chinese medicine culture here in the United States of these amazing doctors and they take a pulse and, you know, they, they, they get the whole picture and they do a treatment and, you know, these amazing things happen in a, you know, in a treatment or two. Yeah. And I I mean, these are lovely stories, but I don't think it's that helpful.
0: Well, we all have had those stories, but unfortunately those are the, you know, those aren't what happens every day. It's not what happens every day. Right.
1: It's not what happens every day. And I think there might be some people that are just kind of ripe and it doesn't take much, you know, the, right. a, you know, a little knock in the right way and everything opens up. But a lot of people are not in that place. Things need to unwind. They need to gestate. They need to, their trust needs to be built or something ha- something else has to happen. There's something physiological. Maybe there's a deep deficiency that needs to be addressed. And then they'll have the chi. To deal with these other issues, and so I, I think this idea of going slower and somehow being able to be attentive enough to listen to our patients while we're holding our own dialogue to recognize when they say, "I'm ready for this next piece."
0: But I, I, I would say that you know, there's the medical intuitive Carolyn Miss, who said that biography is biology. That you know, that was she. Ooh. She she described the idea that you know the way that she acted as a medical intuitive was she could literally in her way of describing it somehow see where the person had something going on she had it for her it was visual but her 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 statement is the idea that you know, we're not intellectualizing this with our patients. We're not going to talk them through it. This is where the, we're what we're doing is is changing their physiology with acupuncture, changing the movement of the fluids that surround the organs that nourish this or nourish that, excess and deficiency regulating. And that begins to change the psychology. So there is always a physical component to these psycho-emotional patterns. It is never just that, I think. It just seems that, the key for us, on, on hopefully on the good days, we can figure out what to do physiologically to help them, but, but it's, it's both woven together. Of course, there's intellectualizing, there's emotions, which we could say are chi level, but, but in the end, we still have to regulate physiology as part of helping people with emotional diseases. This is, this is our strength, and, it, and this idea of stories, then, is one way, one metaphor for describing how we can do that. I'm sure there's other you know, ways to describe it. But storytelling, you know, I mean, you and I are both from the Southeast United States. We're storytelling, you know, Mark Twain when you're from, you know, from Missouri, where you are, there's this great tradition of storytelling. So I grew up telling and listening to stories and uncles and aunts who'd sit around telling long, drawn out stories. And so I think that's just something that I enjoy, but I don't think it has to be that for everybody, but somehow being aware of this unpeeling nature of the psychological and the physical is is and, and this and then and how what that means about the character jing and what channels are also.
1: You know, I want to hear a little bit from you. You asked me a little while ago about the character jing and yeah. how I thought that related. Yeah. I want to hear more about how you're thinking of that. I, I I've heard you say this twice now that there's something that moves through in time that the jing is something about allowing something to move through in time what what are your other thoughts about that
0: well i mean we look at as i was saying earlier there's not just the neijing and Nanjing jing and in chinese medicine there's other jings in chinese culture and it and and you know not every book in chinese history is called a jing it's just certain particularly important texts where jing and, and so my understanding is what these are, is these are a set of ideas that comes through time around which society integrates itself. And so every generation has to interact with the Jing anew. And so the the classics that came from the Han Dynasty were not really understood and thought of in the same way in the Song Dynasty or the Ming Dynasty. And I mean, look now now that they've left China and the classics are interacting with cultures like here I am in Germany, far beyond uh, you know where they started. But that doesn't mean that they're that we have to necessarily. I mean, we should as much as we can understand what the heck they were saying in the Han Dynasty. However. We can't practice like Han Dynasty people. They have to move through time. They have to take on new life. And so, you know, that, that gets to the idea of the classics as literature in the sense of that we read great books to be inspired. And when we look at the classical text, not only do we get, you know, new ideas about where the heck to locate, you know, liver five or, you know, some more insight about back pain. You know, one of Dr. Wang's favorite quotes from the *Neijing* was talking about what acupuncture points are, and it said, "You know, fei, pi, mai, jinggu, or pi ro jinggu. They're not skin, flesh, tendons, or bones." You know, and so like, have you noticed that? Like, yeah. Chinese classics often say what things aren't, but don't say what they are. And so, this idea of leaving it open to your interpretation is inspiring. And so. That's how we can interact with the classics is moving through time. They they come to us and when they say something like, well, the points are not skin, flesh, tendons, and bones, it's our job to say, what the heck are they? And that's us interacting with it in time and thinking, well, maybe the points are the empty spaces between everything. And you know, we know when needling, ah, you can feel that the chi sensation when you're in between stuff. But you came to that not because the text told you that, but because it inspired you to come up with new ideas on your own. And so similarly when palpating the channels, that's how they're Jing also, that you, you don't know what's going on with the patient. And you're like, what the heck is this? A stomach 40 on your leg. Wait a minute. Tell me more about, you know, is it something digestive or is it a psychological phlegm or is it in your shoulder? So you come upon things that inspire you to think. And that's the similarity I think of, of Jing as classics and channels too. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and the stories that our patients tell us the diagnoses that they're living as they come in, you know, I think conventional medicine has some very powerful stories, you know, about how things work and and about how things are. And sometimes those stories can be empowering and helpful to people. But a lot of times, and and, and I'm not meaning to point my finger at conventional medicine, I think we do the same thing with Chinese medicine. Oh, there's, they've got, you know, spleen deficiency. Right now we've painted a whole picture of who this person is, and especially if we go share our ideas with them, right? Because
0: right. we we're kind of an authority
1: him. figure, we lay our idea on them, and now they, oh yeah, well my acupuncturist says I blah blah blah, my chiropractor says I, you know, my massage, I mean, we hear this all the time. My so and so says blah blah blah, right? And whenever I hear that, I, I want to be very careful that I'm not adding to that burden, but at the same time, I'm thinking, okay. There's this thing going on here, the patient has their opinion, their practitioner has their opinion, and what is the patient doing in terms of integrating all of that into, what does that mean about me here today in this life that I'm living? And then there's this other piece, I'm maybe just throwing too much at you at one time, no, so we can, ahead. We can break I, this No, go ahead, I down. have a
0: question for you, but keep going, you okay. might answer it.
1: And so, um, the other thing is, we see Patients for this tiny, rarefied slice of time. And they're reporting to us about other events in their life or things that are going on. But, you know, they're in our clinic, they're in our space. You know, there's that whole doctor practitioner thing. So there's, you know, there's a power differential and all this other stuff. But we get this one rarefied slice of their day to try to understand what's happening and to try to help them in a way that the other 99 you know 992% of the time that they're living when we're not present that they're somehow helped. So I feel like we have these these little moments these tiny slices when maybe we can have an influence and some of that is with the words that we use or don't use. A lot of it is what we do with our needles and this is why I think acupuncture is so amazing as you were saying we can dramatically change physiology when you change physiology you change organ function you change chi you change fluids you change blood all kinds of stuff comes out of that we know this I mean one of the beauties of being an acupuncturist is we don't have to listen for an hour and try to help people sort through their mental gibberish we can just get them on the table quiet them down and let them sort themselves out
0: That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's how we avoid laying things on people. That's what I was going to ask you is what strategies do you have or what have you kind of come to as ways of not laying that diagnosis, not laying something else instead of, you know, helping to peel a layer away instead of add a layer, I guess.
1: Oh man, that's a great question. How to peel a layer away instead of adding one. Um, Okay. So at, at this stage of the game, I do my best not to Give them a Chinese medicine diagnosis to their face hmm. because it's everyone,
0: or especially first few visits, or what do you think? Uh, as much as
1: possible, I want to avoid that. And if, if they're going to ask me for one, because sometimes I go, What's going on, doc?
0: Sometimes, um, yeah. Often, I mean, sometimes they yeah. do often,
1: and, and I don't, I do not want to avoid them. But as much as possible, I want to take what I understand of Chinese medicine. And within the context of who they are and how they are and what they've got going on, give it back to them in a way where they can go, oh, okay, but not get fixated on it and not lay it on them as, here's what I think you need and you should go down this path. Or here's what I think is missing, I'm going to try to give it to you, or you should try to get it yourself. So let me give you a very, very simple example. Okay. When patients say something like, especially new patients, and you put a needle and they go, oh, so are you doing this to work on my nerves? I am not going to go into the whole explanation about, well, you know, nerves are you know part of the marrow and blah, 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 and we kind of consider it part of kidney or part of this or part of that. I'm not going into that. They're focused on nerves. And I simply say, yes, these needles help interact with your physiology, one part of which is the nervous system, because of course nerves send messages throughout the entire body.
0: That's just, how you answer that moment.
1: That's how I answered that moment. I don't I don't want to I don't want to lay my whole story on them. I'm more interested in hearing how are they seeing reality? How are they parsing the bits and pieces of their lives together, and how can I add to it in just a little tiny way that hopefully allows them to feel like I I am joined with them? I'm not coming with a whole other thing and going, oh that no, oh, that's not the way to think about it. Think about it like this: I'm trying to join with what's already going on in a way that they go, oh. That makes sense. And at the same time, have it filtered through my Chinese medicine thinking in a way that my explanation is coming out of that sensibility that I have of how I see and how I interact with Chinese medicine, but do it in a way that this modern person in 2019 living in St. Louis, Missouri, can go,
0: oh. Well, it sounds like in a way you're you're not saying that you aren't explaining it. It's that you're striving to translate concepts into the current time. Not just the
1: current time. Yes, into the current time, but not just the current time. Into this patient's particular way of interacting and seeing and understanding the world. So that hopefully they've got a sense of, oh yeah, this guy understands what I'm saying. I feel heard. And I feel oh, all answered. All right. So,
0: what you just said there is again back to the the Rita Carone article that 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 I, kind of inspired me to to think about this is this is the phrase you and I were talking about. Is she says what what medicine is missing these days is not a lack of empathy but an excess of irony. <laughs> and so then we were talking about what the heck does irony mean? <laughs> you know, irony means the definition I was looking at a minute ago. Is, you know, when you think it's one thing, it's not another, but but then she went on to talk about it. She went on to say what what she thinks is often missing is this, is this attitude of healthcare practitioners that, oh man, you've got you know pancreatic cancer. Well, you know I don't, uh, but I'm here to help you. And thank goodness I don't, you know somehow imply, but I've got it all figured out. I know what to do. Mm-hmm. Instead of an awareness that look, we're all dying. That's just the nature of life. Is that it f- is followed by death, and that. If you can shift this attitude that, you know, we're all dying, it's what you just said, that you feel the patient, the patient feels they're heard or they feel like you're, quote, in it with them somehow and that they're not just there to be fixed. And somehow for her, she felt like an appreciation of literature and this concept of narrative is a way for practitioners to get into that place where they're in it with them. Well, what I hear you suggesting,
1: and I think this is powerful is that we also have access to our own vulnerabilities, our own mortality. And it's not that it's running roughshod, and and so we're kind of out of control with it, but that we also allow that into the room. We allow it into the relationship. We are not the person here fixing. We are somehow accompanying. And we also have whatever thing it is that is a deep cause of trouble in our life. It doesn't stop us from doing our work. It doesn't stop us from connecting, but we can somehow invite that into the room without it being, without it getting
0: in the way. Is that that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, for me, I could even narrow it down to a simple frame of mind that of course I don't always achieve, but I'm trying to, Mm -hmm. it's this attitude. And I, and I don't mean this in a callous sense at all that, I'm going to do my best. I hope it works, but I don't necessarily care too much if it works or doesn't. I just want to like do my best in this moment. If I get too hung up on caring, if I'm helping the person, it actually makes me less effective.
1: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. 2024 to save 10% off Unico Needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yes, because if, if our sense of competence and our sense of confidence and our sense of who we are as a, as a good acupuncturist is dependent on the results of our patients, Right. And we've we've handed over a tremendous amount of our, um, what are we handing over? A, a, a sense of our well-being. essence, our our, our well being, our Jing, right? Jing Qi Shen, the Jing, right? Yeah. We've handed over something essential to a process that, you know, how's this going to go? We don't know how it's going to go, but yes, we show up as best we can. Of course, we want to do our best for our patients, and this is something I find. You know, it, on one hand, when things don't go the way that we like, it, it's easy to feel like, oh, I'm not a good practitioner, and and that causes us certain problems. But there, there's an equal problem that we have, and that is when things go well, we go, look how good I am. Look how right. smart I am. Look what I did. I think that is every bit as big of a problem as, oh, I don't know what to do, and, and maybe I screwed my patient up.
0: Well, I mean, it gets down to the relationship of power, you know, the, the, whether we are trying to be powerful and have a power over our patients or not. And, you know, that, you know, this is another gigantic can of worms, Michael, but it's the it's, you know, some people argue that the Neijing was a break with shamanistic tradition in the sense that no longer is the practitioner trying to be this powerful force that's trying to rip some sort of possession out of the patient. But instead, it's more of learning a process, a way of seeing reality and the patient themselves that allows them to interact with the patient in a way that hopefully brings about healing. But it's a more yin than a yang thing. So I want to come back to for a moment this thing about
1: narrative and this thing about how us as practitioners, yes, we're here to help, but we've also got our mortality that kind of walks with us, we've got our own problems most of us, that walk into the room with us. I'm curious to know more about how you're allowing that to come in and inform the work that you
0: do. Well, um, I mean, I think what you that question you just asked is at the heart of how I'm still working through this material for myself clinically. I mean, so the short answer to your question, uh, which I often say is, I don't know. Um, but I, I think, you know, I remember when I was a student you know, often the teacher would say, you've got to leave your stuff outside the room, you know, like, so there's something to be said for, like, not bring your own frustration, not bringing the fact that your kids are yelling and screaming all morning and or that there's traffic on the way to work. And you have to leave that out of the room. But then the fact that we're all dying, as Rita Carone was saying, the fact that, that death is, is inevitable, but also life, of course, we're all living. If you could somehow be in that state, that's a way... Uh, that's a way to have this uh, uh, this connection, for lack of a better word, because it's not compassion with the patients where um, – and remember, all of this is not – to me, I'm, I'm not talking about this because it's philosophically interesting or it's psychologically appropriate or because of uh, HIPAA concerns or things like that. I'm talking about it because I think doing these things helps clinical results. I mean, that's really what I'm talking about is actually it can make us more effective as practitioners. And so – that's what I'm interested in. And this idea of somehow using this idea of narrative and storytelling, and I'm struggling with what she means by bringing the idea that we're all dying into the clinic. But if we can use this idea to help patients, then, then I'm particularly interested. I can work out my own stuff on, on my own time a little bit. So, yeah, that's a long way of saying, I don't know, Michael. Good question. Well, I find that I don't
1: know is a great place to start right it's not an ending i don't know means oh i throw up my hands i don't know uh, i give up i don't know seems like a really fruitful place to begin you know hanging a bit with recognizing wow i need to be attentive here what's going on it's i find it a very juicy place to um how do i say this uh, focus my attention or, 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 or bring it into my attentive, uh, my sensorium in a sense, because when I don't know about something, I'm usually paying much more attention to what's in front of me.
0: Well, that gets, uh, you know, Dr. Wong, you may have heard him say this, would say that being a healthcare practitioner is like being a detective. It's like, what the heck is going on here? Right. Huh? Yes, All yes. right. Yes. Look, a, a crime scene. Let's figure this out. What's up? And so, yeah, so it's this idea of, and and again, I've, I've said this and I'm sure that not everyone agrees, but this is what works for me clinically is when I'm with patients, I'm not trying to be compassionate. I'm trying to be curious. Ooh, I love that. And so, and again, I, it's not like I just came up with it now. I've been thinking about this, you know, but it is that idea that I, I find that, you know, your, your friends, your family, they're going to be more compassionate to you anyway. People come to us because they, they want us to see them anew with curiosity, like, what the heck? Why do you have that there? You know, and that's if you think about going to a doctor, isn't that what you want them to be is like blown away and curious by your what's happening with you? And Absolutely. on our good days, we can.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of my big frustrations is when I go to see any practitioner, they go, "Oh yeah, this is that. Oh yeah, this thing you got, it's this." And I'm right. thinking, "Really, it's that?" Simple? Oh,
0: I know the points for that. I can I knock it out in one treatment. I know the points. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. We've um, all seen it, and we all know that if anyone sees patients enough, that it doesn't always work.
1: Well, it doesn't always work, and most patients that come into an office like ours, they've maybe been to other acupuncturists, they've certainly been to other practitioners of one sort or another. So if it was something that was going to be simple and easily taken care of, guess what? We wouldn't be seeing them.
0: Well, that's probably true a lot of times, maybe especially for you in Missouri and and in a place where people don't think of acupuncture as often, as opposed to Seattle, where people are starting to think of acupuncture as a first line treatment for a variety of especially musculoskeletal complaints.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say here in the Midwest, acupuncture is famous for musculoskeletal complaints. That's, I, I would say that meme has, uh, has taken its root. way here. Yeah, it's taken root. It's absolutely yeah. taken root. What hasn't taken root is uh, the asthma, the digestion, the you know horrible periods, the migraines. Those, uh, are, the
0: yeah, those yeah. are the things they've seen other practitioners for. Yeah, those are
1: the things they've seen other practitioners for. Yeah, I for. would agree. Yeah.
0: Well, one of the things you were just saying, I want to at least bring one more point that inspired me from the you know the Rita Carone interview that hopefully you'll put on the the website there, is her description of the use of, of of you know narration and literature as a way of helping practitioners with burnout. Mm-hmm. And this idea of having the not just the patients, but the practitioner also realize that they have a story, that they are part of a story, that their practice is a story. And I think what we were just talking about, about that idea of being curious, is an awesome way to prevent burnout. Because when you say, oh, I know how to cheat shoulder pain, I can do this and that, then you're doing protocols, which are, of course, the enemy in our field. And when you're doing that kind of thing, you're much more likely to get burned out. And so, but again, this is something that I'm still thinking through. How is it that we can use literature? And especially if we talk about the, for Chinese medicine, the Neijing and the Nanjing, Jaijing acupuncture classics, how can these inspire us to not be burned out? It's a, it's a question on the table as opposed to something I've totally figured out. Yeah, no, I I think it's a
1: great question on the table. And I think furthermore, it's, imperative, especially if we're going to start digging into the stuff that we've been talking about in this hour, that we become more aware of what our own narrative is. What's our own story? What's the story I tell myself about who I am in clinic or who I am as a practitioner?
0: Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and and if you, I mean, none of us are the same practitioner in the clinic. Each of, I mean, I, I would call it like a clinical personality or I, on the good days, hopefully, really, it's just a manifestation of the best parts of your own personality that you bring out in the clinic. And that, and it being okay with that, like we don't have to be the practitioner our teachers were. We, we don't have to be like this person, even that we respect and admire very much. We have to part, we have to kind of cultivate an ability to, to be ourselves in the clinic and that, and and not be so, and, 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 you know, maybe the word clinic is the wrong word for all this. I mean, I love that you practice in your home. I mean, it has to be, it has to be something more personal. We don't want to be clinical. We don't want to take that on. I don't think somehow we, I mean, clean needle technique and everything, of course, but clinical is what we want to avoid. Well, clinical
1: is a kind of a narrative and it's a kind of a story and it's one that many people feel really good about i'm going to this clinic to get my medical i'm using air quotes here yeah thing taken care of so when someone comes into a, a air quotes here clinic Yongkang clinic is actually the bottom portion of my house these days yeah they're actually walking into a whole different space because on one hand on you know on the internet it's called a clinic on you know I do a kind of medicine. I do Chinese medicine, but there's also this sense of of home. There's, you know, there's a lot of trees around. I mean, people walk through some quietude to actually yeah. get into my space. And so I mean, I've been thinking that I actually need a different name for what I call this thing because it's not a clinic in the clinical sense that most people think of now. Clinical is part of a kind of a narrative. And, and it's certainly one that you can use. You can put on a white coat, you can wear a stethoscope, you can have your name, you know, written in, you know, embroidered stuff on your Hopefully white Hopefully embroidered coat. in cursive. Yeah. It, it has to be embroidered in cursive, unless, you know, you're, you're like super medical, in which case you're using the big fonts with the, you know, serifs and, you know, all that. But, <laughs> you know, again, we're looking here at the very space that we create to see our patients in as part of a narrative as part of a story it's going to bring up or shut down certain things in who they are it's going to bring up or shut down expectations that they have based on everything from what our waiting room looks like to how we walk out and greet them
0: yeah and i think that that can be something in yourself as well as the external environment of course many people listening for a lot of reasons don't have the luxury of having the awesome space that you're describing, which makes me want to go there and just lay around in your clinic. But I mean I, I, I think that it can be just the personality you bring to a hospital room even can have this yes. as well. Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. Exactly. And, and
0: so it's a it's like a it's like a portable home in your mind and heart and hands that you bring around with you and it would be great if we can have the physical environment and i would argue that there's awesome things being done in hospital design with feng shui and like you know the hospitals are changing now biomedical hospitals to have more of what you're describing but i guess you know the famous confucius quote about it has to start in the heart and then the home and then the nation and the world the kind of thing so but yeah, I mean, but if you can create the space, then it's easier for you to get into that that heart space, I guess. And I mean heart space in the matter of just the, the way you perceive reality, the way you see what you're doing. The story that you tell about yourself was great. That's the way you said it. And I'm still figuring that out. I mean, you know, 20-something years into seeing patients, I'm still thinking about this and figuring out that story. And I guess that's how it should be. It should be an ongoing dialogue with yourself as well. I would agree. It's an ongoing inquiry, it's an ongoing dialogue
1: and yes, it I mean if you got a groovy cool clinic, that's good, but if you're in a hospital room, you can still bring some essence. Yes, from the heart. If you're at an accident scene, you can still bring, you know, this essence. Partly it's it's how we are, it's who we are and how we are in a particular moment. I and mean, I'm very struck what you said earlier with the the narrative of reminding the practitioner that they are also in the process of dying, which means we're also in the process of this moment in living.
0: Yes, I think, think that, you have all of that you have to flip it. Yeah, nourishing life, yangsheng. So yeah, Yang mm-hmm. yeah, expanding health. Well, yeah. Um, somehow we can, you know, in our patients, get them to see the stories that Chinese medicine can help, you know, can help explain, you know, that this idea that, and I, you know, I keep coming back to it. I, I really think that the thing that we add to this, this, this concept of narrative medicine is palpation. I, I can't, you know, I'm biased, of course, I'm really into it. But when you put your hands on people, and they can feel you feeling things, philosophy, theory, even blood tests become real. You know, like it's, it's more real than a, maybe that's the diabetes patient. If you point out to them that their kidney seven area is swollen and that throughout history, this area has been used for water metabolism problems and their frequent urination. And they can feel how sore it is and they can feel how it gets better when they make other lifestyle decisions. Then this palpatory experience gives us a great tool. We're not just trying to talk people into stuff. We're just, you know, we're, 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 we're allowing them to, to get in touch with their body, like you said, in their body. Yeah. Well, you're talking about embodiment here. Yeah. You know, really embodiment.
1: And I don't think that these are opposites. I don't think embodiment in our narrative, you know, the story that's constantly running between our ears, they don't necessarily have to be separate. You know, at the same time, I often will find patients, they're, they're so caught up in what they think something means that they're like, totally out of touch with how their body feels. So let me give you an example. I put a needle on someone the other day. This is a mm. person who has to have an explanation for everything. Yeah. And she says, that needle's uncomfortable. And I, and I ask uncomfortable, how? Is it sharp or is it dull? And she goes, I don't know. It's just uncomfortable. And yeah. that really caught my attention, right? She's in her body. She's living in her body, hopefully, She's having an experience. She's having a physical experience. Is it sharp or is it dull? I don't know. How would I know? Right. I think she even said those words. How would I know? I don't know. How would I know? And I was not sure what to do with that other than recognize in the moment, wow, there's something about her ability to sense versus her ability to think about her sensations that's a little bit out of whack here. And what do I do with that? I'm not sure what to do with it in that moment other than recognize it and, and look for it in future treatments. And, and how do you help someone get embodied into being able to make sense of their own sensations?
0: Well, I mean, so this is where you and I might have slightly differing clinical approaches a little bit, just kind of based, and I, again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just listening to what you've been saying. I would not bring that up with the patient at that moment, of course, but in the course, hopefully, of helping the patient with whatever their complaint is, I might point out later that they had said that and that the the concept of the heart and its relationships to perception and what we call like a cloudiness of the heart and a a difficulty perceiving what's really happening around us and totally depending on what's going on with the patient. There's other patients where you wouldn't bring this up, but let me just put it on the table that I'm making notes of those kind of things and I'm actually trying later to weave them into the story in later visits with the patient as they're like oh yeah that feels dull or that feels sharp and I would especially then on on follow up visits see if the person can come up with ways of verbalizing what they're feeling and then pointing out to them that their perception has shifted is again is a way to empowering them that they're doing this as much as me. Yeah.
1: Well first of all I maybe I, and again, miss- again, I myself
0: that, or I may have misunderstood you of course.
1: Well I I did not I mean, I just noted I noted it for myself that, oh wow, she 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 can't make sense of is that sharper doll? I I didn't bring that to her attention. I wasn't like, oh, no, you know, how, how can you not know that? <laughs> right, in my right. mind Nobody in die, my right. mind, I'm yeah. thinking, how can you not know that? In my clinical notes, I'm writing, Wow, how is it that she doesn't know that? What's happening with her consciousness? I, I went to pericardium myself. Yeah. Instead of heart. Yeah, but that that's just that just has to do with some of the stuff I've been studying and working with lately. I'm thinking, well, are yeah. the
0: how patient or diagnosis of that patient? Those are difficult to separate anyway. Yeah,
1: so yes, there are many things like this that I will note in the clinic. I'll take it as a curiosity. I'll go. I don't know what this means, but it really caught my attention, and it's something to chew on.
0: Well, then, yeah, that was. The, so my question for you is: Do you try or think about or think it's important to weave that back to the patient later on
1: i you know i don't know i i would need to wait until that future encounter and and see if it comes up again i mean sometimes i'll hold a question in mind i do this when i'm having when i'm doing the podcast as well i have a question it's like i want to ask a question or i'm curious about this or that and i hold it in mind and the next thing i know my guest on the show is answering the question i held in my mind i didn't even have to ask it yeah. And and I'll find this is true often in the clinic as well. I have something in mind. I'm curious. I don't know. And then something happens and then something shifts. And maybe the patient says something and I just and I just recognize in myself, Oh, there it is, and they have it now. Well then
0: there's no need to bring it up because it's already been done.
1: There's no need to bring it up. It's already been done. And here's the best part they did it themselves.
0: Yes. There's other moments where you might gently tease it out by reminding them of what you noticed. Sometimes
1: too. there is that as well. Yes, absolutely. But if they can do it on their own without any prompting, I figure that's the best medicine.
0: Yeah, you're right. That makes sense. So the story telling doesn't even have to be written down, doesn't even have to be acknowledged almost. But the idea that as practitioners that things change and evolve, including their psychological state, I guess, is what you're saying. You notice it, but you don't feel a need to draw attention to it.
1: Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's this whole, uh, this is an area that gets kind of fuzzy for me because it, it can, well, it me can go off the woo-woo tracks really fast. Yes. You know, and I think we should have more, less, less woo-woo and more woo-way myself, but um, that, <laughs> that's just my way of thinking. But, but there's this idea that, well, you know, sometimes we just witness things for people. And, and, and I think this can become a very woo-woo thing very quickly. Oh, I'm witnessing, blah, 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 you know, in a very ungrounded way. But I think there are moments where patients say something or they inhabit something or something shifts in them. We can feel it viscerally. Yeah. And when those moments happen, just recognize, ah, there it is. I mean, it's like, it, it's a way of recognizing the movement of chi. Oh, there it is. It's shifted. It's like this now. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to call any attention to it because it's their experience. It's not us doing something to them. It's not, look how smart I am as a practitioner. It's, oh, that thing just happened. Great. Done.
0: Yes. I mean, so I'm not at, yeah. So yeah, you don't necessarily have to have the ego attached like I just did that. But it, it seems to me another way, potentially, is to kind of get on board with the patient where you're helping them to tell the story of how all this happens in a way that kind of gives them a new narrative, like you said, like we were saying earlier. So I guess we might have a slightly different take and that I'm, I am slightly more likely than you, I think, to maybe bring it up but to write for the wait for the right moment and if they're already like if, if 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 they're feeling 100% better and they've made these giant insights then of course I don't spend another 30 minutes explaining how I already knew that that's not what I'm saying but there's just moments where you're like wait do you notice that you just said that and last time you said something else so it's like you're curious together like inspiring them to be curious with you about themselves i guess is is maybe on my good days what I'm trying to do here absolutely 100%
1: i call that acupuncture without needles
0: well, yeah, haven't gotten there, but yeah. Yeah,
1: no, but I mean, it. I, I think you are there. You just described that you recognize something in a moment, you feed it back to them, and, and they go, oh, yeah, that's right, it is like that. I mean, sometimes just the recognition that things have changed, and it's not that you're putting, oh, let me show you how things change. It came out of their mouth, and you're just- Pointing it out. You're just pointing it out that can cause all kinds of things just kind of set and gel in somebody, right? Yeah. That might be
0: closer to what I'm saying is, yeah, we're not leading the story. We're pointing it out. We're like, we're shining lights on the things they're saying might be another way to Mm -hmm. put it. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I'm I'm going to be curious to sit down with you in another
1: year or so after you've been doing, how long have you been doing this narrative, you know, bringing inviting (laughs) this narrative stuff
0: in here? Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm doing, if I have been or I have not, or it's, I think in a way, it's it's just a growing awareness that it's what a lot of us are doing. And then like so many things, if you can then bring words to it and then begin to analyze what you're doing in the clinic, you can improve results. You know, my big thing the last, you know, five years especially is clinical reasoning in Chinese medicine, like Mm -hmm. trying to find a way to, on the one hand, become more aware of what we're doing when we're in the clinic. As a way of getting better clinical results, but then not not being, what's the right word, not being like manipulative about it in the sense that we're trying to then create best practices and this and that that we all have to do, but just giving each other tools for all the different things that are happening in the clinical encounter besides simply putting needles through people's skin that then allow us to kind of gently shape that and get even better clinical results. It's, you know, that's, you know... It, it, if, if we can harbor what is often called the placebo effect to medical effects, then it's no longer the placebo effect.
1: Well, this, you know, this is a uh, content for another conversation, um, you know, placebo and, and all this. Here, right. Here, here's what here. Here's where I'm at with it these days. It seems to me that if the mind makes the body well, we call it placebo. If the mind makes the body ill, we call it hypochondria. I'm going, what is up with the mind? <laughs> yeah. Right. That's I mean, a good way to put it. Right. What's up with the mind? I, I, I'll just leave that as a question. We can come back and gab about that another time. All Jason, right. you you referenced uh, this work uh, from the professor at Columbia. Uh, can you point us in some other directions, some resources that people would like to uh, dig into
3: well, this Well, I mean, a little she bit?
0: has a variety. I mean, it, so I think it's, it would just, if you just Google the term narrative medicine, then her work comes up because she's the founder of a relatively new way of thinking about this. And, and, and the reason I bring up this idea is because I think it inspires us to look at Chinese medicine and see some of the things that we've already been doing all along that they're giving new words to, like so many things that, you know, these discoveries that have been – you know, you would know, call it – what's it called? The, um, you know, the idea of systems biology. And Mm -hmm. the Institute of Systems Biology in Seattle is describing how different systems work together, which is very reminiscent of, you know, Chinese medical zongfu theory. And so narrative medicine, I think this this idea of the interaction between literature and medicine in the broadest sense is has been part of Chinese medicine from the beginning, the scholar physicians. And so, I mean, I think we already have it. But on the other hand, her research, Rita Caron, I think it's C-H-A-R-O-N, uh. And her work is, is, is will give all of us new ideas of how to contextualize Chinese medicine, I think, too. Wonderful.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's always fun to hang out with you. Uh, I, I think we're going to have to get back together in a year and revisit this subject to just kind of see where we're at. This Yeah, is, that'd be a great. And also, really hopefully, juicy. your listeners
0: will give feedback, which will inspire us.
1: That's right. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to have a webinar or something at some point.
0: I'd love to hear what other people think about all this.
1: Oh, man, that's the best part. I mean, podcast conversations are fun. But yeah, getting the voices, more voices and in, in, uh, in dialogue is, is really where it's at. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that.